Hello everyone, this is Devin Thorpe for Your Mark on the World and I am really lucky to have with us today uh, Sarah Tofty of the Joyful Heart Foundation. She's the Vice President of, Bi of Policy and Advocacy. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure entirely. Uh, Sarah, tell us what the Joyful Heart Foundation does. Yes, we're a national a nonprofit that focuses on violence against women and girls. And the Policy and Advocacy Department, um, our main uh, advocacy goal is to end the rape kit backlog across the country. And uh, that is a significant problem. Help us understand the scale of this problem. Absolutely. So um, just to give folks some context for this, when uh, someone is raped or sexually assaulted and they report to a hospital or to the police, they'll often be asked to have a rape kit collected. And a rape kit is, is the collection of DNA evidence all over the victim's body um, that could help uh, the investigation of the case, either identifying a suspect or confirming the presence of a suspect, um, affirming a victim's version of events, discrediting a suspect, or um, exonerating and proving the innocence of other suspects. So it's really valuable information that gets collected from a victim's body. It's a very intense process. It's, it takes at least, on average, of four to six hours to have it done. So it's no easy thing to go through. And I think most folks um, assume that once that kit is collected and booked into police evidence, that it is then sent for testing. And in fact, um, most rape kits uh, remain in police storage. They're never sent on for testing. And so we've discovered uh, that there are hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits in police storage facilities across the country. It's just a travesty to think about uh women who have been victimized in this tragic way uh, mm -hmm. waiting for something to happen and and the linchpin piece of investigative process is sitting in storage and nothing is happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's devastating for you know when survivors uh, find out that their kids are in a backlog. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty devastating because, again, like I said, they're going, they, they, they agree to have this rape kit done. It's, it's, an, it's a very invasive process in the immediate aftermath of a very traumatic crime. And I think to a lot of them it feels like they sort of held up their end of the bargain, so to speak, by agreeing to do uh, the rape kit and that uh, law enforcement really failed them um, in not having it tested. Well, what are you doing to solve the problem? Yeah, well, uh, it's a big problem, um, and luckily there are lots of uh, good solutions out there, and there's a lot of momentum uh, to change. You know, a part of it at a most basic level, we have to figure out, you know, exactly how big the problem is in cities and states across the country. We have some estimates, and we know some things about um, certain cities, uh, but most cities and states uh, do not track uh, what they do with their rape kits once they're collected. They don't track how many of them uh, are sitting untested in police storage facilities. And the federal government doesn't track that information as well. So everything that we've learned about the rape kit backlog is from the really hard work of uh, journalists or uh, nonprofits or, or human rights advocates. It's not because of, for the most part, it's not 
because uh, cities or states have been particularly forthcoming. And so we want to see uh, more jurisdictions counting their kits and making that information public. Because without that data or those numbers, it can be really difficult to galvanize the stakeholders to create change. And then we want to go ahead. I understand that you've made some progress with respect to the 2015 budget that President Obama put forward. Yes. You know, there is lots of progress on this issue. Um, we have three states that currently require tracking and testing of all rape kits. And then we have a lot of support at community levels, at state levels, and now at the uh, in the federal government um, to think through not just counting and testing those kits, but what to do, what kind of commitment needs to be made to fully investigate all the results you get. Um, from those rape kit tests. And that's what um, the $36 million that's allocated in this year's president's budget will do. It will fund, you know, when a city discovers it has a backlog, it will help fund what they're calling community response teams. Um, this includes police and prosecutors and community advocates and crime lab folks and everyone who has a stake in this. Uh, requiring them to come together and come up with a really solid, aggressive plan to investigate all the hits they're getting from testing these kits. Now, uh, I think you had sent me some information that uh, Detroit had discovered a, a, quite a backlog, and they found a way to rally around and have uh, many of the kits in the backlog tested there. Uh, and did they discover some shocking information when they did? Yeah, you know, Detroit uh, in uh, about 2009 discovered they had about 11,000 untested rape kits in their police charge facilities. And as you know, um, finding resources for anything in Detroit is very, very difficult. But a team has come together to show real leadership on that. And I say if they can figure out how to do model rape kit reform in Detroit, uh, you can do it in any city, in any state. And of just the first 1,600 kits that they've tested, they've identified 100 serial rapists. And they've also connected offenders um, who committed crimes uh, in Detroit um, to rapes in 22 other jurisdictions um, and uh, Washington, D.C. So what we also like to say is, um, you know, any one city or state's backlog isn't just that city or state's problem. It's really the country's problem because it impacts community safety everywhere. It is just shocking and tragic to think that there are 100 serial rapists in that port, in that first sampling of fewer than 2,000 rape kits, uh, suggesting yeah. that something like 10% of the rapes are committed by serial rapists and they're out on the streets because we're not testing and not prosecuting. You know, it's heartbreaking. I think everyone that was involved in the project in Detroit, we knew we'd get some, you know, big numbers in terms of DNA results, but I don't think any of us predicted we would have identified that many serial rapists. Um, from so few kits. And it's, and it's heartbreaking because I think, you know, the rape kit backlog um, exists because, in a way, it's a very tangible symbol of how few, how hard it is to get a rape case through the system. We have a very low arrest rate for rape in this country. It's around 23, 24%. And I think we're, we often think of America as being very tough on crime and, and sometimes in a very disproportionate way. And that certainly may be true, but also um, we're not doing so good when it comes to um, holding uh, 
rapists accountable. And I think people are really surprised to hear that. And the rape kit backlog is a very tangible symbol of that because those kits represent cases that really uh, received very little attention from the police. Yeah, it, it, it help us help us think through what does a world look like where there is no rape kit backlog? What what else happens? What's going on in that world and how does that world differ from the world we live in today? Yeah, and that's a really great question. Um, what has to happen, because like I said, um, this rape kit backlog is connected to all kinds of disconnects in the criminal justice system about how we treat survivors of uh, sexual assault and how we hold offenders accountable, right? So we need a world where, um, uh, you know, we take rape even more seriously than we do, where we believe victims um, and we understand the value of uh, moving their cases and their stories forward, both for them um, and for our communities, um, the value of justice, the value of safety, and the value of healing. So I think what a, a community without a backlog would look like is not just that you have no untested rape kits in your storage facilities and that you send every kid immediately in for testing, but that you're fully committing um, in a way that very few cities are um, to doing everything you can to investigate every case that is coming to you. Um, and you believe that all these cases are worth it, and so you put all your investigative resources behind it. And I think then what you'll see is, you know, when an individual comes forward and reports their rape, um, the experience will be one of compassion, the experience will be one of uh, respect, um, and perhaps some satisfaction in terms of receiving the justice they deserve. And I also think it'll start sending a message to offenders that you're not going to be able to get away with this crime anymore, that we are going to hold you accountable. I think especially in Detroit what you would see when you looked at those cases where there were serial offenders are these were perpetrators who were getting away with this crime over and over and over again. And we sent, you know, by Detroit not testing those kits, they sent a message that you can continue to go ahead and get away with this because um, we don't take this crime very seriously. Well, it seems above all that what happens when we clear the backlog is we ultimately prosecute the offenders and make women safer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I hope it does, too, is it prevents, um, you know, rape in the future in that, again, offenders are going to learn more and more. People are going to learn more and more, one, it's not acceptable to do. And two, if you do it, you're not going to get away with it anymore. And so in that sense, too, we hope there'll be, uh, there'll be a preventative aspect of it as well. And we also hope that if, if everyone is taking rape seriously, then all any of the shame or stigma that all too often victims feel about what happened to them will no longer exist, or at least will be shifted perhaps to the perpetrators. Yeah, certainly it's the perpetrator and not the victim who should be ashamed. Uh, the, uh, how do people engage to help you in this cause? What, what do you need from us? Yeah, well, first of all, we have a really great website um, that we just launched in October of last year called endthebacklog.org. And on that webpage, you're going to find all, every, all of the information we know right now about where backlogs exist, where reforms are taking place, and all the things that we don't know. So one, we uh, offer opportunities on our website for people to reach out directly to um, city, state, and federal officials to advocate for reforms. And we also show them, uh, give them a bit of a how-to on if you want to find out if there's a backlog in your jurisdiction, um, how you might go about doing that. 
And so I think that would be a great way for listeners to get involved. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Sarah. Uh, tell us how else we can get in touch or what else you need from us before we wrap up. Well, I think you need to tell, uh, when folks are watching this and this is the first time they're hearing about the backlog, tell someone else about it. Because in my experience, um, it's one of those issues that really galvanizes people to action. People are shocked and dismayed to find out it's going on. And we need more people um, on our team uh, spreading the word about the fact that it exists and asking the tough questions um, you know, to their local, state, and federal officials about um, what you know, policymakers, what their responsibility is in terms of helping us end the backlog. Well, fantastic. Well, Sarah, I do hope that uh, there will be a lot of people who will follow up and, and help you in this effort, because it, it is just tragic to think of the disrespect the system is showing to victims of crime when we don't even process the rape kits. So thank you for focusing our attention on it and uh, for your good work in solving this big problem. Yes, thank you very much for giving us this platform. Alrighty, let's do some good. Okay. This is Devin Thorpe. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, which was recorded during a live broadcast of this interview via Google Hangouts on Air. A video recording of the interview is available at youtube.com slash devonthorpe. You can learn more about the work of the Your Mark on the World Center at yourmarkontheworld.com.